This week in the Dan Cave, we're talking Seahawks and Ravens. And two questions take front and center. How should Seahawks fans react to the return of Earl Thomas? And is Russell Wilson ascended to the throne as the best quarterback in the National Football League? And with the Mariners preparing for season two of their first ever full-scale rebuilding process, I'll take a look at the final four teams in this year's baseball playoffs and we'll try and draw a map of just what it will take for the Mariners to get to where they are. Spoiler alert, it's all about the starting pitching. All that and my dumbest tweet of the week, next in the Dan Cave. Welcome to the Dan Cave. Here's your host, Dan Vies. Welcome back to the Dan Cave, episode number 56, but episode number one in the brand new palatial Renton Studios. The Dan Cave headquarters has relocated. We just, um, well, we're still in the midst of uh, moving from Maple Valley to Renton. And, um, oh, you hear it all the time. Moving sucks. You know, that was a, a lot of conversations at work. Man, moving sucks, doesn't it? No matter how much help you have, moving sucks. And here's what I've always said about that. Moving out sucks. Moving in is the fun part. Um, especially in this situation, it was a, a a move that Erica and I have wanted to make for a while, and we found a spot that works really great for us, and we're really excited about the new space. And you have a vision on how you want to get it set up and really make it your home. So the moving in part's kind of cool, but but there's definitely different phases to moving. Uh, phase one, obviously, is getting your stuff from point A to point B, and we had so much help. Shout out to all of our friends who helped us uh, on this move because moving into our last place, it was pretty much just Erica and I, and it took uh, a full day, about a day and a half. We got everything loaded into the truck, moved, and had the truck emptied, and all the stuff moved into our new place in four and a half hours. Basically, everybody showed up and we started the process about the time the Seahawks were kicking off in Cleveland. And we were done four and a half hours later. So it was about, uh, it was not quite an hour after that game had finished. So had to listen to some of that game on the on the earphones while I was moving. Obviously, it didn't start out well, but by the time it was all wrapped up, the Seahawks pulled out a win, and we were just wrapping up our move. It was a pretty exciting time. We're definitely um, in between phase two and three now. Phase two is, oh shit, we have way more stuff than we thought we did. When you get it all moved in, and then you kind of take a lay of the land and uh, realize it's a bigger job, you bit off more than you could chew, or at least you thought you did, because... um, we got so much stuff done in about a 36 hour period after we moved in that it exceeded our expectations. Um, and now we're in phase three, which is settling in and there's still boxes and, and another shout out to Erica because yesterday was the beginning of her work week. And I thought after a weekend of moving and then getting back into work for the first time, um, that she'd be pretty beat up and and just want to, want to take it easy, kind of like I did yesterday, but I got home from work last night and she was already in bed. And, uh, and I, I literally said out loud when I walked in the door, um, whoa, like I couldn't believe how much she got done and it's really starting to, to shape up. So, um, I have an improved setup here that, um, in the not too distant future, 
uh, should allow me to do some more stuff with um, with video. And uh, like I said uh, last week when I talked about it, I don't know that full video episodes are in the cards, but I think I will do uh, excerpts and highlights, maybe a little 10, 15 minute um, pieces of each uh, podcast. I may also do some shorter episodes, do some more immediate reactions to some things or big trades or news, uh, little four or five minute videos, in which case uh, the YouTube channel will, will be a much more prominent uh, part of this whole production. And so um, certainly keep it tuned here. Hit subscribe if you haven't already so you get notification of new episodes and stay up to date on all that stuff um, because the YouTube channel will become a much more, uh, will become a much bigger piece of this whole process. Uh, we talked about Seahawks Browns, a uh, lot of positives from that game. Um, two big things that came out of that game for me. One is we're starting to see that defensive secondary take shape a little bit. And while it's still interesting to see what's happening on the back end, that Pete Carroll has essentially thrown that competition wide open. Uh, Marquise Blair got some more snaps than he has uh, so far this year. There's kind of a rotation there with Tedrick Thompson, Lano Hill, and Marquise Blair, and then Bradley McDougald moving around, um, uh, sort of depending on who else is out there with him, moving back and forth between free and strong safety. We're starting to see, we're starting to see guys making plays. I talked a couple of weeks ago about how there weren't any interceptions and um, and there just weren't any plays being made. We're starting to see Trey Flowers make some plays now. He had an interception against the Browns. Tedrick Thompson now his second game in a row with a pick. Some of those things are starting to shape up. Still too many big gains and explosive plays being given up. Um, but you're seeing those guys grow. And the most exciting thing on that back end is the continued development um, of Shaq Griffin. You know, year two, we all agree, was a down year for him. Sophomore slump. Um transition to the left side after playing his rookie year on the right side, uh, transition to being the guy as opposed to a complimentary piece or a bookend with Richard Sherman. Um, he's really taken a step forward. And it seems to be on the verge of being a guy that may be considered in the not-too-distant future as a lockdown corner, as a franchise-type corner. I think he's playing at a Pro Bowl level right now. And uh, Flowers seems to be taking a step forward this year as well. So the cornerback position looking a little better than it did to start the season um, for sure. Um, still still some concerns with the pass rush. Two games now in a row where the Seahawks have failed to register a sack or even a quarterback hit. There's a couple things going on there. First of all, the the Browns and the Rams did this too, of course. They they do this against most people and especially against Seahawks. Teams are just trying to get the ball out quicker. Um, and Baker Mayfield was much better at that Sunday than he had been um, earlier in the season. And, and really that was kind of his downfall. He was holding on the ball too long. There was uh, talk of he and Kitchens not being on the same page and Kitchens calling too many um too many slow developing pass plays, um, which was exposing their offensive line issues. But they seemed to, to dial some of that in against the Seahawks. Mayfield 
was really getting rid of the ball quick. So not a lot of time to get to the quarterback. Another thing, I saw a stat this week that Jadavian Clowney is number one in the NFL for percentage of snaps played in which he's getting double teamed. Um, Which brings up the question, what the hell's going on with Ziggy Ansah? Um, And I think the jury's still out. Is he... Is he still rusty after missing missing most most of last year? Is he still not one hundred percent healthy? Is he washed up? Is he done? Um, I don't think he's a player that Seattle would just kick to the curb unless they were able to make another acquisition between now and the trade deadline in two weeks. Uh, but he hasn't been productive. And if teams are double teaming Clowney and Ansa's still not getting home, that's a concern. But things change this week. Because the Seahawks get to welcome Jerron Reed back into the fold after his six-game suspension for uh, violating the the league's personal conduct policy uh, for domestic abuse um, uh, accusation from a couple years ago. He's back. Ten sacks last year. Now the Seahawks have an interior player that has to command attention. If teams continue to double-team Jadavian Clowney, then Jaron Reed, once he shakes his rust off, um, could be a force. Because without him, the Seahawks were built primarily to stop the run inside. Uh, Puna Ford, Al Woods have been playing well, but they're they're mostly run defenders. A couple other guys can reduce inside. Quentin Jefferson, Brandon Jackson, LJ Collier. But none of those guys are the penetrating... Uh, pass rush, pocket collapsing force that Jaron Reed can be. So one of two things is going to happen. Either teams are going to continue to try and double team Clowney, in which case Reed is going to make an impact, or teams are going to have to pay more attention to Reed now on the interior, and Clowney's going to get uh, more one-on-ones and get the ability to get home, get to the quarterback. Same can be said for Ansa. So it'll be really interesting to see over the next few weeks how that pass rush develops. And if they are able, with the addition of Reed, to start getting pressure up front without having to send linebackers and blitzing, then all these teams that we're playing in the next few weeks and over the course of the rest of the schedule, Arizona, San Francisco, the Rams again, uh, that use multiple multiple receivers and uh, complex passing games, that it'll allow the Seahawks to stay more in their base defense, drop more guys into coverage, and uh, and defend those offenses better. This week is going to be really, really fascinating. Um, the Ravens are an interesting team. And first of all, just right off the bat, I want to say that, that I think there's enough evidence now to support, um, to support the assertion that I was wrong about Lamar Jackson. I said I didn't, I didn't, by him as a quarterback, as a passer. I didn't believe what we saw week one um, when he went nuts as a passer. Um, he is vastly improved and he's better than I thought he was. I still don't like the motion. It's still slow. But I think in the context of that offense, with what they do, with the threat of him running the football and the fact that the Ravens play to that and embrace that and aren't afraid of that, just makes him more dangerous as a passer and and covers up for um, some things that I, I think he does 
that are still a concern as far as traditional quarterback mechanics go and just the ins and outs of playing that position. Um, it's a fascinating matchup. I think it's the kind of the sneaky best game on the schedule. Uh, I posted the enemy confidential piece on Seahawk Maven today looking at the Ravens. And when you look at how the two teams match up statistically, it's pretty remarkable. Uh, both teams, I think they're they're neck and neck. They're 10 and 12 in the league, separated by a tenth of a point in passer rating allowed. Um, both teams are in the top 10 in rushing defense, but both teams are in the top 10 in rushing offense. The Ravens lead the league. Um, Lamar Jackson is eighth in the NFL in rushing as a quarterback. Mark Ingram is 11th, not too far behind him. Um, it's going to be a fascinating matchup. In some ways, and I hope I'm right about this, the Seahawks may be better equipped to defend the Ravens than just about any team in the NFL because they stick to their base base defense so often and because those three linebackers that they have allow them to do some things other teams can't. Um, having Bobby Wagner, K.J. Wright, Michael Kendricks on the field at the same time uh, being able to cover sideline to sideline, whether they'll they'll use one of those guys, Wagner, to spy on Jackson or not, we'll see. But just those players' ability to run, cover, react to the quarterback, not many teams have that. Um, because they're such similar styles in many ways, this game is going to come down to special teams, Ball security. This game could come down to turnovers. And and you look at it and you say, okay, it's an AFC game. It's another game. Man, it's it's funny how the schedule worked out. We're playing that AFC North and we're getting th- we're getting all four of those games out of the way by week seven. It's weird, right? It's really weird. But I I think it works in our favor. Obviously, we've won all three so far. If we can sweep the North get those games out of the way then we get on with the the meat of our division schedule and you say it's just an AFC game if they lose it's not a big deal the 49ers don't look like they're going to be losing anytime soon their their schedule over the next couple weeks looks pretty soft too and by the time they roll uh, into Monday night football in Santa Clara against the Seahawks in a few weeks there's a good chance they'll be undefeated so every game on the schedule matters for the Seahawks it would behoove them to uh, to try to keep this winning streak going and get into that money now with just one loss on their own. Another thing out of the Browns game I wanted to mention is how encouraging is it the play of Seattle's reserve offensive alignment? One of the storylines the first quarter of the season has been how disappointing the offensive line had been. We thought with all four or five starters back from last year's squad that was vastly improved and looked very good at times. And uh, all you were doing is swapping Mike Upati in for J.R. Sweezy. Some people would say that's an even swap. Some people would say it's an upgrade if Upati is healthy. They haven't played well early in the season. Um, and then you put Jamarco Jones in at right guard because of the injury to Ethan Posick, who's now on injured reserve. So you have to throw Jones in at right guard, a position he never played. 
And now two weeks in subbing for DJ Fluker, he is graded out as the Seahawks best offensive lineman. He looks like a revelation there. The Seahawks still maintain he's a natural tackle. That makes me even more encouraged about the future with Jermaine Effetti set to be a free agent. Dwayne Brown on the wrong side of 30, starting to slow down, now having some injury issues. And so now because Brown missed the Browns game, George Fant got his first opportunity in a couple years to play left tackle and looked extremely good. On one touchdown pass to Jaron Brown, Effetti was matched up one-on-one against Miles Garrett, NFL leader in sacks, number one overall pick a few years ago. And Fant, in his first start at left tackle in a year and a half, was matched up one-on-one on the other side against Olivia Vernon. And they both held their ground. Really encouraging stuff from those two guys. And then the team gets Phil Haynes back. Um, he doesn't look to be activated this week, but he's eligible to come off the pup list. Fourth round pick out of Wake Forest. Had the uh, had the great offseason. Team is really encouraged about him at left guard. So now you're starting to see a future take shape where Fant could be your starting left tackle, or Jones could be, and, and some combination of Jones and Fant could be your starting tackles. Or they may choose to keep Jones at right guard long-term because he's played so well there. Phil Haynes, probably, we haven't seen him yet in a regular season game, but all indications are that he looked in the offseason and threw all the OTAs like a starting caliber player as a rookie, uh, could be your left guard of the future. So now you head into next year's draft where maybe three, four weeks ago, we would have been talking about, geez, we need to find three or four potential starters in this draft on the offensive line. Now you're looking at one or two. Is the team going to move on from Justin Britt next year? Probably. We'll talk about that in a later episode. Are they going to move on from Effetti? Probably. We'll talk about that in a future episode. So really encouraging to see, given how poorly the line played in spots the first three weeks, and now how well these young guys have played stepping in for some injuries, that uh, that the future of that, that position group looks a lot brighter. And now we need to talk about the quarterback. Two, three years ago, the debate was, is Russell Wilson a top 10 quarterback? Is he elite? The the Pete Prisco, Mike Freeman debate. And you can debate what the word elite means. And... And there were still a lot of misconceptions even two years ago about how Wilson played and and that he was strictly a scrambler or a system QB, that it was all the defense that made him look good. Then last year, you started to hear conversation about, is he a top five quarterback? The question now is not just is Russell Wilson one of the top three quarterbacks in the NFL. Is he the best quarterback in the National Football League right now? If it were ever possible to set bias aside in this debate, because typically anytime you debate who's the best at any position in any sport, guess what happens? Kansas City Chiefs fans say it's Patrick Mahomes. Green Bay Packer fans say it's clearly Aaron Rodgers. Patriots fans say, six rings, it's Tom Brady. Houston Texan fans say, don't forget about our guy, Deshaun Watson. 
And up until last year, the Colts fans would swear up and down that Andrew Luck was better than Russell Wilson, even though there was no tangible evidence to support that. But now Luck's retired. Brady appears to be regressing. Watson's coming on. He's certainly coming on, especially since they've made some improvements in that offensive line. Mahomes is the other guy that's right there with him. Rodgers seems to have taken to his new offense, really playing well lately. So I think it's pretty clear right now that it's three guys and then Watson. Funny how things change, right? Five weeks ago, Cowboys fans would have been pounding the desk for Dak Prescott. Can you do that now? So it's Mahomes, Rodgers, and Wilson. But in this moment, right now, Mahomes is banged up. He's leading the league in yards and near the top in just about every other category. The Chiefs have lost two straight. And there's talk that he hasn't been playing as well. Is it just the injury? Is it that the league has adjusted to him? A little bit. Russell Wilson leads the league in passer rating. And he leads the league not just in overall passer rating, but in every other possible category. Inside the pocket, outside the pocket, against pressure, not against pressure. He's second in the league in just about every other category. Completion percentage, yards per completion, touchdowns. He's one of only two starting quarterbacks with zero interceptions so far this season. The other being Kyle Allen, who didn't start the first two games of the year for the Panthers. He has to be the MVP leader at this point. The Seahawks are 5-1. and one. I don't think anyone projected them to be 5-1. and one. And he's playing his best football. He clearly, it's not just the numbers and the, and the stats and the analytics. If you just, you just watch him. The command with which he plays every spot, every snap, every scenario, every situation. His command of the offense. The way he has improved his game mechanically, strategically, the way he moves in the pocket is different. It's better. How quickly he gets rid of the ball. He's in total command. And he looks like the player that said he wanted to win multiple Super Bowls when he was a young quarterback. Russell Wilson, right now, as we sit here today, I think he's the best quarterback in the NFL. He's in that group of three, and I think he's the leader in the MVP race right now. Has to be. And he's going to have to be good again uh, this Sunday at CenturyLink. I will be at the game. Look for my closing thoughts column on Monday for Seahawk Maven as I wrap up uh, what I thought of the game. And I I, I enjoy these the most, uh, these closing thoughts columns, because I when I get to go to one of the home games uh, 
and then I record it at the same time. So then I get to come home and watch it again and get the benefit of, of, um, of the audio and, and the replays, all the things you miss when you're, when you're in the stadium, um, you get to kind of reprocess things again and compare it to what you saw and felt in the stadium. So looking forward to that 125 on Sunday kickoff at CenturyLink Field between the Ravens and the Seahawks. And just one final note. Obviously, Earl Thomas is returning to CenturyLink Field in another uniform. I've talked at length on this podcast the problems I have with how Earl Thomas went about his business while he was here. And now that's all being dredged up again this week because he's coming home. And just to capsulize my thoughts on that, I I think he handled the situation so poorly that he could have gotten the extension he wanted had he gone about his different his business differently. But he chose to do it the way he did. He had it in his head that the Seahawks were going to kick him to the curb, his words, two years before the separation ever happened. The outcome was the outcome because he made it so. I hate the way he went about it. But he's simply one of the greatest players ever to put on a Seahawks uniform. The minute he retires from the game, his jersey should be retired for the Seahawks. He is a surefire ring of honor inductee, 12th man flag raiser. He's a Hall of Famer, and he'll go into the Hall of Fame as a Seattle Seahawk. What he did for the Seahawks on the field is what should matter. And if you're one of the idiots who thinks that the right thing to do on Sunday is to boo him, then stay home and boo him on television. Earl Thomas deserves your respect no matter how poorly he handled that whole situation. That's how I feel about that. All right, let's talk some baseball. We are down to the final three. Uh, The Astros and Yankees have been postponed for a couple nights because of weather. Um, Game four is supposed to go off tonight um, with the Astros leading the Yankees two to one, two games to one in the ALCS. And of course, the Washington Nationals are sitting back and waiting. They advanced to their first World Series ever uh, after sweeping the Cardinals, absolutely dominating them in the NLCS. And so, of course, this means that the Seattle Mariners are now the only team in Major League Baseball to have never made it to a World Series. Um, Frankly, this is something I, I... I could give a rat's ass about, but it's been, it's been a huge deal the last few days, huge deal. National writers are making a big deal out of it. And, and most surprisingly, I guess to me, and, and, and it's frustrating for me, but a lot of Mariners fans are making a huge, huge deal out of this as well. As if somehow the Nationals making it to the World Series this year impacts in some way what the Mariners are and should be doing. As if it puts more pressure on them. Well, now they got to do something. They're the only team not to make the World Series. 
They got to hurry up. They got to scrap this rebuild and try to win now. Pressure's on. If they don't get this done, everyone should be fired. Nothing has changed since Monday. The Nationals making it to the World Series doesn't mean shit in regards to the Seahawks or the, the Mariners' current process and what they need to do to get to that level. It's ridiculous to think that they should change in any way what they're doing because they're chasing history. The goal is to get to the World Series. That goal hasn't changed. I saw a tweet this week and I just thought uh, it was deserving of the title of Dumb Tweet of the Week. Maybe that'll become a regular segment. It was in response to a tweet from Jason Churchill of Prospect Insider. If you're a Mariner fan, you don't follow him on Twitter or listen to his podcast, you should, starting yesterday. And Churchill was making the point that um, the Rays and the A's model of building their franchises uh, doesn't work for everybody and isn't the model the M's are following, nor should they follow. Um, and, and basically it's in, in very, very condensed form. Um, their model is based on payroll restrictions. And so finding bargains, money ball. So Brent Schwartz, <laughs> Brent Schwartz at BS Jesus tweets. There's so much going on in that Twitter name. Uh, anyway, Brent Schwartz replied to him and said, 10 years ago, I'd agree with you, but this regime has little roster continuity. Fans want an organization who can cobble together a playoff roster every couple of years and would settle for that because there's no confidence in building a model organization. I don't know where to begin on this idiotic tweet. Let's break it down. 10 years ago, I'd agree with you, but this regime has little roster con continuity. By regime... I assume he means Jerry Depoto's general manager and uh, Mike Stanton, or not Mike Stanton, John Stanton as not not the former pitcher, John Stanton as owner of the Mariners, has little roster continuity. Okay, for the first three years of Jerry Depoto's regime, it actually had a lot of roster continuity because he was charged with trying to build around the existing core. So it was Nelson Cruz and Robinson Cano and Felix Hernandez and Kyle Seeger, and James Paxson. And he made some trades to supplement that, but he kept the core together trying to compete because it looked like they were potentially on the verge of competing. There was no more turnover during that first three years of DePoto's run here than there is on a year-to-year -year basis on any other roster in Major League Baseball. So that's a ridiculous claim. And the roster turnover between 2018 and 2019 was because they were tearing it apart and rebuilding it in a more complete... in, in a more complete way. And he told us that. But what I really can't wrap my head around is this. 
fans want an organization who can cobble together a playoff roster spot every couple of years and would settle for it. Is this true? I don't know any fans who want that. If you're so starved for a playoff spot, and as I've said before, a one-game playoff spot, that what you really want the Mariners to do as an organization is just go out and stick their fingers in holes in the dike and put Band-Aids on things and try to sign one-year wonders and guys coming off injury and slap a bunch of free agents together and have an older roster and just hope to catch lightning in a bottle to get a playoff spot one year? Is that what you really want as a fan? I can't believe that. He's not the only one to say something like this. Or I wouldn't have put such a spotlight on it. But if that's really what you think you want, then you need to step back, exhale, look in the mirror, and reconsider. What you really want is a championship, right? And a championship that leads to the possibility of other championships. You want to build some consistency. I think the Cardinals are a great example. There were times during the season nobody thought the Cardinals were a World Series team this year. But they have been an organization that over the last 20 years has always been competitive, has developed good players, has made strategic strikes on the free agent market and in trades, has made some World Series, has won a couple. They've taken some little step backs but they've never fallen too far. Just good people, good baseball people running an organization the way it should be. That's what you want. That's what the... Fans want an organization who can cobble together a playoff roster every couple years. That is unbelievable. I just... No, they don't. (laughs) No, they don't. I think Brent Schwartz is in the vast minority. So, let's put that to bed. Because if I read it again, my head's going to explode. I mean, put it in football perspective. Here would be the analogy. Would you be okay if the Seahawks' approach was to try to cobble together an a 9-7 and seven team every couple of years to sneak into the wild card. It's literally what he's saying he wants from his baseball team. Would you want that from the Seahawks? I don't think so. So, let's look at the final four teams, the teams that made the league championship series this year. And we'll start with the Cardinals because they were the first to be eliminated. I think you're going to see some interesting similarities. And it, it does lay out a bit of a roadmap and leads me to a point that I'll make at the end. In particular, you have to build an outstanding starting pitching staff. It doesn't have to be one through five. One through five helps you to get to the playoffs, obviously. But that fourth and fifth spot can be 
sometimes Tommy Malone type guys, but it can be a Marco Gonzalez that goes out, gives you six innings a night, wins 13 games, but isn't going to be in your starting rotation in the postseason. But if you look at something that that all four of these teams have in common, it's their big three, their top three starting pitchers who can lock teams down in the postseason. For the Cardinals, it was Adam Wainwright, Jack Flaherty, and Miles Mikolas. For the Yankees, Severino, Tanaka, Paxton. For the Nats, Strasburg, Scherzer, Corbin. And for the Astros, obviously, we know all too well Cole Verlander and Granke. You have to get there. That's really what the undoing of the the A's has been. That's why they win 90 games every year, but have gone 10 straight postseason appearances without advancing. Because they they put a rotation together. They cobbled together a rotation good enough to make the playoffs, not good enough to win a playoff game. But these four teams did. Again, Wainwright, Flaherty, Mikolas for the Cardinals. Severino, Tanaka, Paxson for the Yankees. Strasburg, Scherzer, Corbin for the Nats. Cole, Verlander, Granke for the Astros. How did they get those guys? Mixed bag for all three. The Cardinals. Adam Wainwright was a first-round pick of the Atlanta Braves. Went to the Cardinals as a minor leaguer in the J.D. Drew trade. Jack Flaherty was drafted and developed. First rounder out of high school in 2014. Those guys don't always pan out. And Mikolas, really interesting. Reclamation project, kicked around, was a Padres and Rangers cast off, went to Japan for a couple years, signed as a free agent in 2017 with the Cardinals, coming back from Japan, found something over there, Got it dialed in at the age of 30. Was an all-star in 2018 and was really good this year as well. The Yankees. Severino was an international signing. Tanaka basically was as well. He was signed out of Japan as a free agent through the posting system. And then Paxton, as we know all too well, was acquired from the Mariners through trade. So already Cardinals and Yankees, you have... One player on each team that was signed or drafted and developed by themselves. Another player who was signed as a free agent. And another player who was acquired via trade. Let's look at the Washington Nationals, who used their starting pitching to completely lock down the Cardinals lineup and advance the World Series. Steven Strasburg, drafted and developed. Number one overall pick. Should have been a Mariner. If they would have just if they would have just lost one more game, they would have ended up with Steven Strasburg instead of Dustin Ackley. Drafted and developed on their own. Scherzer and Corbin both free agent acquisitions. So they're the only team among the final four who didn't get one of their top three through trade. And then the Astros did it the most interesting way. All three, Cole, Verlander, and Greinke, all acquired via trade. So, how do the Mariners get there and how far away are they from that? If you look at their current inventory, right now, the only two guys 
that may be in the conversation are Gonzalez and Kikuchi. I've already kind of given away my answer there. I think what we saw from Gonzalez in 2018 was very good, but it's as good as he's ever going to be. I think he's a fourth starter that helps you win 95 games during the regular season and get to the playoffs, but likely isn't going to start a playoff game or at least won't be in your top three. Kikuchi, I still hold out hope, could be. The stuff is there. It was a it was a huge transition this year. He's young enough. He works hard enough. Really cares about his approach. This will be his first full offseason in the States to work on his repertoire and his approach. He, so he has a chance. He has a chance to be one of those guys. I would put the odds at less than 50%, but he has a chance. Then let's look at the guys who are expected to contribute in 2020, the young guys. Justice Sheffield, Justin Dunn, Logan Gilbert. We saw Sheffield in September, and there were really positive signs. Just 23 years old, Dunn, just 22. We saw the bad first start, and they used him kind of as an opener. He just pitched an inning or two. He had the bad debut against the Astros, but then had three really solid appearances. And then Logan Gilbert, first-round draft pick out of Stetson two years ago. One of the best pitchers in minor league baseball this year. We saw him advance from low A all the way to double A. He's going to see the majors at some point next year. When he was drafted, a lot of people said his ceiling was as a three, maybe a two. He now looks like he has a chance to be an ace. Then after that, the next layer within the organization are guys that I would put in the two to four years away category. And those were the first three draft picks this year, all college pitchers, George Kirby, Brandon Williamson, Isaiah Campbell. Kirby had the outstanding rookie season. Saw some really good things out of Williamson as well in limited showings. They're really trying to keep the innings down on those guys coming out of college. And then Campbell didn't pitch at all because Arkansas went so deep in the College World Series. But he may have the highest ceiling of them all. Kirby really looked outstanding. Can you put, can you squint your eyes and envision a top three capable of winning in the postseason out of those eight players? Probably not. I think the best case scenario is Kikuchi advances to that level and two of the three guys that we'll see in 2020 get there as well. So just for the sake of names, let's say Gilbert, Sheffield, and Kikuchi reach their potential, reach their ceilings. Still don't think that's good enough. Because the most realistic scenario is that you'll have to acquire one of those guys, either via trade or free agency, maybe two. Best case scenario, most optimistic scenario, you got to acquire one. And so really, and you all know by listening to the show how positive I am on the Mariners rebuild and how good of a job that I think Jerry DePoto did in the last 13 months. Ultimately, because I believe there's enough in the system that the lineup in two years could be dynamic. If I believe they can. I don't think they will because it's just not usually how it works. 
I think they can stay within the system and have a dynamic lineup in 2021 and beyond. I do. So it's all about the pitching. And you're going to have you're going to have to acquire at least one one or a two type top of the rotation dynamic starting pitcher. And I think that's most likely going to happen through trade. Free agency, you know, fewer and fewer of these guys get to free agency now. The numbers when they get to free agency are crazy. But the biggest thing is this. They're going to need to acquire this guy before 2021. Probably not going to happen this offseason. But it could happen at the deadline in 2020. Certainly could look for it to happen in the 2020 offseason before 2021. probably wouldn't be able to attract one of the top free agent names here yet. Unless you can just find that one guy that wants to be part of something. Because those guys usually want to go to a situation that they feel is good now. Garrett Cole is going to end up signing with the Angels because he's from Southern California and they just signed Joe Madden as manager and they have Mike Trout and they have enough pieces there that he he has a fairly good reason to believe that he can make a difference and make them a contender. Or he may just sign with the Dodgers because they are just one starting pitcher away. But you're not going to get a guy to like that to sign with a team that still might be two years away. So you're going to have to trade for one of those guys. And this kind of ties in with my next question. Should the Mariners trade Mitch Haniger this offseason? He's 28 years old now. Had the six-win season in 2017. 2018 only played 62 games before the injury. Missed the the final two-thirds of the year. Only hit 220 before that. He's about to enter his first year of arbitration. He's probably their most tradable player asset that they would be willing to trade. Most tradable assets going to be Rodriguez, Kellenic, Gilbert, but they're not willing to trade any of those guys. Not yet. For the right deal, they would trade Hanniger. I believe that. I believed it last offseason, but I think his value was so much higher then that they were holding out for a blockbuster deal and they just didn't get the offer they wanted from the Braves. Why is his value down? He's a year older. He's got one year less of control, and he's entering arbitration this year. So you're going to have to give him a raise even though he's coming off a down year. He's not going to make $567,000 again. I think Mitch Haniger might be a guy that can get you the type of pitcher that I'm talking about. You find a guy out there, and Jerry Depoto is as good as any GM the Mariners have ever had at finding guys out there that we're not thinking about. But guy's in a similar situation to him, just about to enter arbitration, has a high ceiling, but maybe hasn't quite reached it yet in an organization that has pitching depth, but would love to have a controllable 28-year-old outfielder with five tools. If you can find a match in another organization where we can get a guy that might be on the verge of breaking out and has the potential 
to develop into a one or two type starter, then I think Haniger can be traded. But I think we're going to find out pretty quick. Arbitration isn't until February, but trades are going to start happening right away. If the Mariners believe, as they stated last year, when they swore up and down they didn't want to trade him, if they truly believe that he's a special kind of player, that they want to be part of this winning window, then it's likely that they'll attempt to buy out his arbitration years, at least some of them. So if they really see him as part of that, I think they would try to approach him this offseason. I don't know what the projections are for what he might make in arbitration, but maybe a three-year, $30 million deal? Something along those lines? Maybe 324 would get it done. Maybe just a two-year deal. So he still has that third year of arbitration to look forward to. He would still be tradable at that point. But I think if something like that happens early in the offseason, then that's a clear sign that they believe, as they have said, that Hanniger is a part of this thing. In which case, then you start to run short of pieces to trade for a guy like that. Um, although the organization is deeper than it's ever been, and there are pieces there. A year from now, this could make more sense. Because these other guys that I talk about, you'll you'll know more about Sheffield. You'll know more about Dunn and Gilbert. You'll know a lot more about Kirby, Williamson, and Campbell. You can dip into that pool to help you get a guy that's closer, that can pitch for you right now. It may be too soon to see a trade like that. Um, but we'll see. If they do decide they want to trade Hanniger, let's say they offer him a little bit of a deal to get through some of these arbitration years, they could dip into that outfield pool because it's a it's an area of strength. It's an area of depth. Malik Smith, Braden Bishop, Jake Fraley, Kyle Lewis, Dom Thompson-Williams, Jared Kelenic, Julio Rodriguez. If you're going to keep Hanniger, you could trade one of those guys. And there's some pitching depth, too. You could add some of that to it. It'll be fascinating to see what they do this offseason. I don't think this is the go-for-it offseason. If the right player's there, certainly. That's my belief. If the right player's there, he's available, and you have the means to get him, get him. Because you don't know for sure if you can get him next year. You heard Eric Briggs and I talk about this at uh, in the Season 2 premiere. That the fallacy... The mistake in setting a timeline for when you're going to go for it is that you're then you're then a prisoner of available inventory in that moment. Okay, this offseason doesn't make sense. So 2020, 2021 offseason in between. Cause I don't know. I don't know what you call. Is the 2020 offseason, are we in the 2020 offseason? Or is this the 2019 offseason? Anyway, the offseason after 2020, if you decide that's when we're going to go for it, because that's when Kellenick will be here, and Gilbert will be here, and all these guys will be developed in one more year, that's when we're going to go out and get a starting pitcher. Well, then you're at the mercy 
of the inventory that's available. Guys that you might think are going to be free agents next offseason could sign extensions or get hurt. Guys that you think might be available in trade won't be. So if the right player's there this offseason and you can get him, get him. And one thing we know about Jerry DePoto, and this hasn't always been the case. In fact, I might make the case it's never been the case in Seattle. Is that he's a guy that's that's constantly grinding and constantly searching for those deals and will leave no stone unturned. He doesn't just sit back and wait for the phone to ring, Jack Zarenchik, and take the obvious deals. So we may never know about it if it doesn't happen, but he's looking for those opportunities. So as you as you watch the World Series and you watch the starting pitching, remember two things. One is that's where the Mariners need to get to. And two is some of those guys might already be in the system. Okay, I know it's easy to go on Twitter and express your frustration and man, we got to go out and get one of those. Let's trade whatever we have to do, mortgage the farm to get two of those types of pitchers. We may already have them. And don't give me just a side note. This wasn't on my notes, but it's just, ugh, it's a pet peeve. Don't give me the whole, yeah, yeah, we heard that. We've heard that before. We heard that about Ryan Anderson. We heard that about. Clint Najat and Bobby Madrich. Right? Just because those guys didn't make it. Just because Danny Holson didn't make it. Has no bearing on whether Logan Gilbert, George Kirby, Brandon Williamson, or Isaiah Campbell is going to make it, or Justin Dunn, or Justice Sheffield. There's no correlation. Zero. Zip. Because your last girlfriend was a shit doesn't mean your next one's going to be. Because your last diet didn't work doesn't mean your next one's going to be. Things can change. Things can get better. Things can improve. Mariners will. This podcast will. In the new... Renton headquarters. Um, that's going to do it for me this week. Thanks for listening. If you don't follow me on Twitter, please do at Seahawks Forever. Click on the link in my bio. It'll take you to the anchor page where you can send me a message I can use in this podcast. Anything you'd like to say, uh, reactions to games, how you feel about how things are going on with the Mariners and Seahawks. Would love to hear it. Um, if you're ever in Snoqualmie, come visit me at the Woodman Lodge. I'll be behind the bar making award-winning drinks. And a little programming note, uh, I mentioned him earlier in the show, but I uh, have the honor and privilege to have been invited to join Jason Churchill on his fantastic podcast, Baseball Things. Um, it is a subscription podcast, but the entry-level subscription is only $5 a month, and it's the best Mariner content you're going to find out there, presented in a really, really digestible format. And... Uh, um, it's, it's just, it's an honor to have been invited to be on a show. And we're going to talk about the Mariners and the rebuild process in particular. I can't wait for that. That'll be next week. I will let you know as soon as it's recorded and when it's posted, 
Um, until then, man, big game at CenturyLink Field this week. Can't wait to see what happens with that. And uh, uh, join me here next week, and we'll we'll wrap that up and, and look ahead to how things look uh, moving forward for the Seahawks. Until then, thanks again for listening to the Dan Cave. I'm Dan Viennes. Go Seahawks. Go Mariners. Go Cougs.